Amazon had a record slate of 15 shareholder proposals at its annual meeting this week, including several focused on employee issues, such as working conditions and safety in the company's warehouses. One of the proposals, calling for an independent audit on working conditions and treatment of Amazon warehouse workers, was introduced by Isaiah Thomas, a worker in the Bessemer, Alabama facility that's been the subject of an intense union campaign over the last year. While Amazon pledged to improve safety and Jeff Bezos promised to make Amazon the Earth's safest place to work, the injury rate at Amazon facilities increased by 20% in just one year alone. But Amazon's safety report claimed their injury rate went down. Amazon's warehouses are more high pressure and dramatically more dangerous than any other warehouses. Would you want to work in a place where you're constantly watched through surveillance, or given physically unsustainable quotas, or where you're punished for not working fast enough. Investors love to think about their returns, but what about the safety of the people who helped you get those returns? Addressing the issue of safety later in the meeting, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy started with his take on the injury statistics. Nothing is more important than the safety and well-being of our teams, and we spend a lot of energy and resource on it across our network, and we'll continue to do so. Having spent some time with the safety data myself, there are a lot of ways you can spin that data, and there are special interest groups that regularly skew them for their own agenda. And if you look at the industry averages versus our numbers, we're a little higher on warehousing and a little lower on messengers and couriers and, and grocery, so about average. But I take no solace in being average, but I do believe it's achievable to be the best in the future, and I'm focused on it, and the team is focused on it. So there are several things we're doing right now to try to improve. But it was what Jassy said next that stood out as telling to our guest this week. Andrea Lay is founder and CEO of the Alum Group, a new e-commerce learning company. A writer, teacher, and speaker on the subject of e-commerce, Lay was an Amazon general manager and retail category leader for nearly 10 years. She was most recently VP of Strategy and Insights at IdeoClick, a Seattle-based e-commerce tech and services firm. She's also an Amazon shareholder, and she joined me after the meeting to talk about key takeaways. Andrea Lay, thank you very much for talking with me. Yeah, happy to be here today. Thanks for having me, Todd. We both listened to the Amazon annual shareholder meeting. I got to say, I do miss the days when it was held in person. Virtual isn't <laughs> quite the same. But you, given your history at Amazon, inside the company, and then also advising clients and working with companies that are trying to sell on Amazon after you left, must have a really different perspective on these meetings it strikes me sometimes like a tale of two companies where you've got the critics submitting shareholder resolutions and the company really presenting an alternative reality in some way. <laughs> what stood out to you as your, your takeaways from this meeting? Well, I think my biggest takeaway and the thing that I love the most about Amazon and loved when I was working there is they, they do things and they make business decisions without really focusing on how they're going to explain it to shareholders and Wall Street later. And that certainly stood out to me when they started talking about capacity and how they essentially built too much. I mean, that came through on the Q1 
earnings call as well. Uh, and they they really weren't thinking about how they were going <laughs> to explain that to Wall Street later. They just knew it was the right thing to do on behalf of the customer to make sure they had enough capacity to meet the COVID demand surge. And that kind of stood out to me throughout the call. They chose very select things to talk about and presenters to present based on what they really care about right now, not necessarily what they think is going to make them look good. And so I thought that was interesting even sort of their angle on on workplace safety, which I know we're going to dive into a little bit, you know, taking a perspective of the technology of safety and how they were going to solve for that versus more of an empathy first kind of approach, which I think is true to their DNA. Yeah, first of all, we have 8,000 people who are just focused on safety in the company. We're making meaningful investments in wearables, um, haptic signals that um, tell our teammates when they're um, pursuing dangerous movements so they can be um, safer in how they move around. We've built a rotational program with pretty sophisticated algorithms that predict when people doing repetitive actions are about to incur injury and then moving them to a different activity so that they don't incur that injury. We've delivered new shoes, which you know provide both toe protection as well as um, uh, prevent slipping. And we're continuing to invest in, in a number of transportation vehicles and technology. We, we just rolled one out that cut the accident rate in half. So there, there are a number of things that we're doing, and we're working really hard on it. But I won't be happy, and the team won't be happy until we're the best in the industry. And even then, we're not going to be happy because we know there are injuries uh, that we could be preventing. So we have a lot of work to do here, but you can bet we're going to be very focused on it. And it was a very Amazonian way of addressing it. <laughs> Yes, they focused a little bit less on empathy and more on the science of and the technology of workplace safety, which I guess if you have half a million or more warehouse workers, you are probably thinking about it algorithmically more than you're thinking about you know each individual worker that's injured. I think if you look at like the labor unions and and the maybe some of the employee perspective, they're like one injury is too many. And Amazon's thinking about how do we solve this problem at scale? And I think those two points of view just won't ever marry. And, and so I think that's interesting. But on the workplace safety, they really approached it, the question and the discussion from like the science of safety and the technology of safety. They talked about how they have 8,000 people just focused on safety and they're using technology such as algorithms that predict when an injury might occur. So like predictive algorithms based on how someone moves or the type of activity that they're doing, you know, some different types of like biometric stuff that will alert someone when they've been doing a repetitive task for too long and maybe like move them to kind of a different task or a different workstation. And so I thought that was interesting that they're approaching it from that perspective, which I do think is the right long-term perspective. With that many workers in that many warehouses, you probably can't stay on top of workplace safety by putting up signs and like managers walking around helping people like that doesn't always scale super well, uh, but it doesn't solve the short term either. That's a really interesting point. At that scale, you need to leverage technology. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a worker on the floor in an Amazon facility, you want to hear that this company truly cares about you. And, and clearly they're trying to get that across with things like the new leadership principle of striving to be Earth's best employer. But to your point, I think you see the true nature of the company come through when they start talking about technology and data and focusing in those areas. And the other place this came out was in the PTO system in a lot of the reporting last year by the New York Times. Mm -hmm. You had these systems basically making decisions that empathetic, reasonable, attentive humans would not have made. 
<laughs> Absolutely. If you haven't read some of those articles about the weird emails that people got during the pandemic from the automated HR systems, it's something something to read. But you know, they hired 300,000 employees last year. And they did share that all across all industries, newer workers in these industries tend to get injured more. So I thought that was interesting. But it also means they've got a lot of like less experienced managers in place. They talked about that kind of holistically, not specific to workplace safety, just kind of as a company that they're trying to invest more in manager training and things like that. All that said, there are for sure areas where I think we can be improving. And, and um, you know, I'll list a few. I, I think when you when you think about people who leave companies, they tend to leave managers more than the company itself. And we have a very talented group of managers at Amazon, but we have also grown the number of people at the company the last five to 10 years um, very substantially. And with that, the number of managers, many of whom we've promoted internally and some of whom we've, we've hired externally. And we have uh, management training that, that we um, have built over time, but we have work to do to continue to make sure that our managers understand that managing is a privilege. And you know the number one job for them is making sure that they are developing their teammates and their employees so they grow their careers and continue to grow what they can do for the company and, and for our customers. Coming up next, Amazon attempts to make its core consumer retail business profitable again. We'll be back with more from Andrea Lay former Amazon GM and founder and CEO of the Alum Group. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. On the business side, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy addressed the issue of that overbuilding that they essentially did in two areas. One was the fulfillment infrastructure, and then the other was the workforce. They doubled their infrastructure over 24 months in fulfillment and nearly doubled their workforce. And it feels right now that they're essentially going through a post-pandemic or end of the pandemic hangover in some respects. Yeah, that's really what it is. I mean, they overdid it. <laughs> I yeah. think. And they said they hired 300,000 workers last year and doubled the capacity to what they had spent the last 25 years building, which is which is pretty incredible. I'm, I'm confident we'll get back to a healthy level of profitability in our consumer business. We're working really hard on it. We've had some unusual things happen the last couple of years, some more in our control than others. We doubled our capacity that we'd built in the first 25 years of Amazon in just 24 months. And we had to make decisions on when to build fulfillment centers really a couple years in advance. It's, it's typically a long lead time, but even longer in COVID. And so we made a decision to build to the high side to avoid constraining consumers and sellers in any way. And we have a, a number of steps we're taking right now. We're, you know, we're trying to defer building activity and on properties where we just don't need the capacity yet. And we're going to let some leases expire as well. But I'm also quite confident that we will grow into this footprint. I net it out by saying that cost is 
a really big area of focus for us. It's it's the number one priority for our retail team. It's something that I'm spending a lot of time on myself as well. And we have a lot of clearly identified opportunities that we think will improve the situation. And I'm confident that we'll return to the healthy profitability in the consumer business. And it was interesting. They, they didn't get as much color on it in the shareholder call, but they did in their, earn, their Q1 earnings call and talked about how it was going to take them a few quarters to grow into it. So you can kind of understand a little bit the scope of the problem. Yeah. And it struck me that Jeff Bezos was able to do this game with Wall Street successfully for decades, where he basically said, hey, we're not profitable now, but we're investing for the long term. And sure, Amazon had its ups and downs in the stock market over the years. But if you look at what's happened over the last six months, and granted, the market overall is down over the last six months, but Amazon shares are down more than 38% over that time period. I wonder if Andy Jassy has the same level of credibility in his new role as Bezos did as the founder saying, hey, this is a magical business and just stick with it. That's interesting. In some ways, I think he he even has more credibility because he came from leading the AWS segment of the business, which is the fastest growing segment of the business. It grew 37% year over year. Um, you know, it's representing a pretty big chunk of the total net revenue and it's growing really fast. So I think in some ways he has more credibility because he came from the business that is sort of performing the strongest and is and is kind of the, the golden child right now. But in a lot of ways, I think you're right. How could he have the kind of credibility that Jeff had, you know, in weathering sort of the entirety of the business over that long period of time? One of the things that he brought up was the 5% increase in fees that Amazon passed on to its fulfillment by Amazon customers, the third-party sellers who use Amazon's shipping infrastructure and fulfillment infrastructure to get their products to customers, largely by selling them on Amazon as well. We absorbed a lot of these costs for sellers for much of the pandemic, you know, really the first two years, hoping costs would attenuate at the beginning of 2022. But when the war in Ukraine hit and the inflationary costs continued to go up. We just couldn't keep absorbing all of those costs and run a business that's profitable and sustainable. So we passed some of those on to our fulfillment by Amazon sellers. We didn't take this decision lightly. We hate raising costs for our sellers, and we're as eager as anybody to see inflationary costs subside. You've worked with many of those sellers over the years. I'm curious that 5% increase that we saw recently, how was that received by those sellers that, that you've worked with? Well, I mean, any cost increases or fee increases by Amazon are, are never super well received. I think they've been really inconsistent in how they've rolled out fee increases over the years, which I think contributes to maybe a little bit of how they're received. You know, sometimes they'll do a few in a row and then it'll be a while before they do another one. And it has had been a while that since they had increased the fees, the sellers that are working with other fulfillment partners are seeing similar things as it relates to UPS. Like they've introduced a fuel surcharge now to do delivery and pick up products from consumers' homes. So, I mean, I think they're probably the sellers are seeing it across the you know the entire ecosystem. You know, and I guess I don't think anyone really expected Amazon to absorb all of that, but eventually the shopper pays, right? Because if the seller is now incurring more fees, they're going to pass those on to the consumer, um, and so eventually the consumer is going to pay for them. I remember at one point when we talked last year, there were all of these issues with capacity constraints inside Amazon's fulfillment network. There were backlogs and challenges getting products to customers on time from third-party sellers, if I'm remembering correctly. 
if they are saying they overbuilt, what's the status of things now? Yeah, it did sound as though any out of stocks or delays that shoppers are incurring are experiencing on Amazon are probably not the result of a capacity constraint on Amazon's side. I mean, they're pretty much caught up as it relates to warehousing capacity, transportation capacity, and labor capacity. I mean, those are kind of the three the three areas. And over the course of the pandemic, we saw major bottlenecks in any one of the three, if not all three at various points of time. So like maybe, you know, they would have enough space, but the stuff was not, products weren't getting received because they didn't have enough labor. That happened for a while. For a while, there actually wasn't space to put it. Amazon started putting limits on things like hazmat space and, and things like that. And then for a while, there was a transportation limitation. There just weren't enough trucks and drivers. So, I mean, it's kind of the problem has sort of moved around a little bit, but I think they're they're pretty caught up and they have really built out their transportation arm over the pandemic. The pandemic presented them with a really interesting opportunity to do that. And and they had said in, in a previous earnings call, like it was probably about two or three quarters ago, that their own transportation arm was becoming competitive with with like some of the national carriers, which to me kind of between the lines said it's not as not as profitable for them to use their own carrier network. And then in the most recent earnings call, they said it was competitive. They even said something like sometimes more competitive. So uh, that language tells me that building out their own transportation, which is now delivering the lion's share of their of their packages is is more profitable for them. Yeah, when you hear them use the acronym AMZL, Amazon Logistics, that's what they're talking about there, versus UPS and the post office primarily because they stopped using FedEx yes. a few years ago, in part because Amazon was becoming competitive and I think FedEx felt threatened by that. One of the things that's come up, it did not come up on the meeting today, but we saw the buy with Prime program where Amazon is essentially extending its fulfillment network and the prime benefits to third-party e-commerce sites beyond Amazon.com. And one of my questions is, as you see this fulfillment network being built up, this overcapacity, how likely is it that one way they'll use that extra capacity is to compete with UPS and FedEx and the USPS by delivering packages that are not sold on Amazon.com increasingly? Well, they should. If you look at the online stores division of the business, it experienced negative um, negative growth rates for the last two quarters. Their comps are pretty bad. And, and a lot of businesses are experiencing that because we've had, just had such a volatile couple of years. But the growth in their business is not coming from their own online store, right? And so you, you look at that and say, okay, well, where is the growth going to come from? There's still a lot of commerce happening outside of Amazon. And so how do they take a commission on that, essentially. Um, so they think that's one thing. And then you pick, you combine that with the fact that they've got all this extra capacity, warehouse and transportation. And so it seems like just a really natural next move to offer some of that up to some of the other retailers. Next up, what Amazon's focus in physical retail says about its larger approach. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Another interesting area 
was retail stores. And there was a presentation by Dilip Kumar, the head of a lot of Amazon's retail activities. And it's an interesting time for Amazon's physical retail stores. Of course, they have Whole Foods, but they also closed their bookstores recently. And they just this morning, though, we're speaking on Wednesday, just opened their first Amazon style store, a Mm -hmm. retail clothing store in Los Angeles. What's your take on where Amazon is with physical retail based on what you know and what you heard today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and as Dil- as they put Dilip on, I couldn't help thinking to myself, why are we talking about physical stores right now? Like there's so many other things to talk about with their business, but they choose things on purpose. I mean, they choose, they're not choosing things to talk about on the in the shareholder meeting that they think are going to make us happy. They're choosing things they're excited about. And so I tried really thinking about it. First of all, we've seen a lot more activity in stores in recent years because they can. So in prior years, because of all of their taxation issues, having physical presences and all of these different locations would create a lot of problems for them. And so for a long time, they couldn't do physical. Um, but now, you know, now that's kind of um, that ship has sailed. And so they so they can so they can experiment. But as I was listening to him speak, I decided that it's not about having a physical footprint at all for them. It's not really about growing like a store chain or, you know, in any of the traditional ways that we think about retail, it's about the payment technology. So they're mm. talking about it because they're excited about the payment technology. So they they didn't feature like how nice looking their stores are and all the brands and merchandise that are sold there with the way a traditional retailer would. They took the angle of looking at, you know, the just walk out technology, the dash carts and the Amazon one or pay with your palm. And so they were featuring the technology that's powering their stores. And it's hard to say what Amazon would do, but I I can envision them really blowing those out as kind of standalone business units. It takes a long time to build a chain of physical stores unless you buy one. You know, they're they're really difficult. Um, I think with the bookstores, we saw they shut them down because it's hard for them to manage. They have to do assortment. Um, skew rationalization and things that they're not necessarily super skilled in. But what would be really great for them is that they just licensed all their payment technology to all the other retailers out there. So I think they were featuring that because they're excited about the payments. And and maybe it's less about like having a physical footprint. Something that I was looking at coming into the meeting was Jeff Bezos's 2014 letter to shareholders, where he talked about the ingredients for a, a dreamy business, as he called it at the time which is kind of a weird phrase. He's since, and the company has since started calling it a pillar, uh, a business that's a pillar of the company. And he said that there were three of those pillars at the time, Marketplace, Prime, and Amazon Web Services. And the way he defines those businesses is customers love it. It can grow to a very large size. It has strong returns on capital and it's durable with Mm -hmm. the potential to, to endure for decades. So apart from those that he cited at the time, Marketplace, Prime, and AWS, do you think there are others that are coming up that have achieved that status inside Amazon? Well, I don't think anyone saw the advertising business coming. So I would I would add that. And that is, let's see, that's about half as big as AWS from a net re- revenue perspective. And it is durable, but if you look at the sales of AWS, it's pretty linear. I mean, the trajectory from, you know, going all the way back to like 2016 to present, it just kind of ticks up a little bit um, over time. Whereas advertising is a function of online sales. And so it's super spiky and peaky, just like a retail business behaves. And so I guess it's still durable, but maybe not in the same way that AWS is. (laughs) Yes. My issue on that one is do customers really love that? 
maybe if it boosts their sales significantly, they would, but I don't know. It seems just like a, a cost. Maybe I'm cynical about the advertising too much. I mean, I think there's a lot of reason to be cynical because it is compromising the shopper experience. I mean, I remember kind of some conversations inside Amazon years ago when we started kind of rolling out some initial ads and the decision, What it wasn't like, we think this is super customer centric. It was, we have to find a way to have a sustainable, financially sustainable e-commerce business. And if this is the way that we can offer products like eventually with, you know, same day delivery to shoppers, like this is what it's going to have to be. Like we have to figure out a way to do it. It's one of the only things I think within Amazon's experience, shopper experience that is not super customer centric all the time. You know, some of it is, it maybe serves up some, some stuff that that's pretty relevant to your searches, but I, but I think more often than not, it's uh, a little bit less customer centric. What's the one thing that you'll be watching closely, an uncertainty or a question that was unanswered or that was raised by the meeting that you think bears paying attention to in the, for the rest of the year? I'm, I'm interested to see more about their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. To date, most of the things that they talked about have talked about in the past and the things they talked about today were their employee affinity groups, which to me, like, that's great, but those are employee-led. So, like, what's the what's the company doing kind of programmatically to try to, to get more diversity of thought, I think, in, in the leadership team? So, I have also been spending a lot of time really thinking about their carbon footprint, and they talked a little bit about that. They've committed to be carbon neutral by 2040, by 2025, be using renewable energy in some percentage of their uh, facilities. They were already on, ahead of schedule on that, and 100,000 Rivian electric vehicles and they will have 7,000 on the road shortly. So they also mentioned they're the largest corporate purchaser of renewable energy. It is something that's top of mind for everyone. And so I think the question is like, are those the right things? And is that enough? And I don't know the answer to that. Andrea Lay, thank you very much for talking with me. Todd, it was a pleasure as usual. Former Amazon general manager and retail category leader, Andrea Lay is founder and CEO of the Alum Group, an e-commerce learning company. You can find related links in the show notes and at geekwire.com, including our coverage of the outcome of all of the shareholder resolutions. Thanks for listening. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>